is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yes, well, summer hasn't quite left us yet and fires continue to burn in a couple of places across the state right now. We'll cross to close to one of those fire grounds shortly on the program to hear from a farmer about what has been quite a long night. You'll also hear today about the long wait to harvest wine grapes, which is continuing for many growers across areas of this state. And we'll take you back to the GRDC forum in Bendigo, where there is some major work happening and major announcements happening as well. All of that and more would love to have your input in the program today too. 1300 977 222 to call. You can text as well, 0467 842 Right now it's time for Rural News with Jane McNaughton. Hi, Jane. A very good afternoon, Warwick. Livestock shipping company Wellard reported a $5 million US dollar loss for the half year ending on December 31st. Head John Klepek puts the loss down to a fall in Australian cattle exports to their lowest level in 10 years, a result of high cattle prices and disease outbreaks in Indonesia, combined with high shipping fuel prices. John Klepek says it's a tipping point, even if cattle prices come back. Key export markets may not have the capacity to return to business as usual. Quite simply, uh, $5 plus is just not sustainable for anyone in the export live export industry. So we're looking for a trend change. Uh, and, you know, if you look at, um, you know, where the markets have been before, when the herd has got to the size that it's getting to now, MLA reports, you know, 28.8 million or 29 million head, there's a certain amount of turnoff that is associated with that and that either finds its way into the processes and the live export market is, is the clearinghouse for whatever's left over there virtually. So if you look at the you draw a line through that, uh, the volumes have to increase. The problem, though, is because we've had such a sustained price for such a long period of time, the capacity, um, especially in Indonesia in the feedlots, is not there. Um, A lot of these guys have exited the business. So if all of a sudden you had uh, 100,000 head of cattle to send into Indonesia, they can't take it. Um, They just physically cannot take it because there are the processing facilities, et cetera, that are there have exited the industry. So... You know, we're in for interesting times in the next three or four months. We said in our release, um, in our results, that, um, you know, we believe it's a a critical juncture for the industry and, you know, I would use the word uh, tipping point. The former CEO of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association is taking up the reins as leader of a new cattle industry body in Australia. Luke Bowen has been appointed as the first CEO of Cattle Australia, which is the new peak body for the nation's grass-fed cattle industry. As well as working with cattle, Mr Bowen has spent the past decade in various Northern Territory government roles, including General Manager of Northern Australia's Trade and Investment. The Federal Government yesterday announced a new report outlining paths to decarbonise heavy industry. The report, which consulted with 18 industry partners, has found that over 1.3 million new jobs could be created throughout this decarbonisation strategy. Under these pathways, warming could be limited to Australia's 1.5 degree Paris Climate Conference target. New South Wales Farmers Chairman of the Transition to Renewable Energies Task Force, Reg Kidd, says farmers will need better equipment to make this transition possible. I'd like to see further uh, inputs into research and uh, not comments being saying that, oh, look, the technology's there, because oh, I think it's frustrating to people in regional areas where you see people from Sydney or in some of the city-based media papers sort of say, oh, look, the technology's there, 
why aren't they doing this? Well, I don't think they really appreciate that food and fibre is produced out in regional Australia or regional New South Wales. The distance are further. We use different equipment to get paddocks and so forth ready to grow crops. And secondly, our transport needs. We're travelling a lot larger distances and we don't have the infrastructure that perhaps they've got in the inner city. And fruit and vegetable growers in the Granite Belt region southwest of Brisbane near Stanthorpe have been left with little to no crops after a hailstorm tore through last week. President of the Granite Belt Growers Association, Nathan Boriano, says many growers can't afford insurance for their crops and now face a year without making an income. He says he's worried a lack of disaster support for farmers impacted by hail damage will see people leave the industry as it becomes a more regular occurrence. Yeah, look, the damage that we've seen is just essentially entire crop devastation to wherever the hail hit. Our farm, for instance, we've got about 20 acres of strawberry plants which are outdoors. They literally look like someone had walked over them with a... uh, with a hedge trimmer. Um, east of us was the the heaviest hit region of the um, of the storm strip. On the night of the storm, there was so much hail that it stood six inches high in some places. Just amounts of hail that would, even if you had hail netting, it would have brought down absolutely everything. So. Unfortunately, if you were under the storm, um, any crop that you had was just completely destroyed. And Warwick, that's today's Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Jane. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. And hey, just something extra to throw towards the Rural News bucket. I've just noticed as well, Bega Cheese have announced they're going to close a Canberra processing facility previously known as Capital Chilled Foods. 19 employees will be offered redundancies or redeployment. Uh, The company's saying there are no dairy farms in the ACT and milk was often trucked to that facility bypassing other processing centres. But Bega saying they'll continue to produce bottles using the Canberra milk and Dairy Farmers brand from the group's Penrith site in New South Wales as well. So Bigger Cheese shutting another dairy factory in Australia, the Capital Chilled Foods Factory in Canberra. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 11 past 12. Let's take you to Flowerdale now, where a major fire has been burning at Flowerdale near Ye, just north of Melbourne overnight. Terry Hubbard farms just near there where it started and we'll speak to him in just a second. The Watch and Act level fire now, it has been downgraded just a short time ago, continues to be in the, the Flowerdale area, threatening areas like Derry Creek, Homewood, Kerrisdale, Strath Creek and Strath Creek along Upper King Parrot Creek Road. So we'll go through the warnings proper. There is a community meeting coming up tonight. I'll share some more details on that very shortly. But let's start with Terry Hubbard, who who farms just near there. I asked him to describe really what the conditions were that firefighters were facing in that area yesterday afternoon and what they're indeed working under today. We farm a property called the Three Sisters, which is just over 2,000 acres, and we have sheep and beef on there. And uh, our our property is... Between it was just one or two kilometres from the seat of the fire, uh, and I'm pleased to be able to say that from our perspective, which is a bit selfish, the um, the fire was being carried away from us by a very strong southerly 
wind uh, yesterday. Yeah, Terry, can you take me to yesterday when the, the fire started? What was the, the weather like in your part of the world? The weather, the weather was pretty cool, but we had a fierce southerly wind, which we've had a few of in the last month or so. And um, as it turns out, it was helpful that we had that. I don't think the temperature would have been any more than 24 or 25, but, Warwick, we've got an enormous amount of long grass from the extended wet winter and spring uh, on every property around the place. And uh, it was inevitable that if something went wrong, it was going to run very well with that uh, the wind that we had yesterday. As luck would have it, the wind died down at probably about 12 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I was still up watching it then because I was, I'm getting too old to assist these people. Uh, but the, um, it was clear that the fire was subsiding because it was more or less creeping down the hills and it needed to creep down the hills so that the uh, CFA foot sloggers could actually get access to it because it was in hopelessly... Uh, inaccessible country, uh, totally dependent on aerial bombing, and we had a fantastic amount of support in that department. Yeah, the the view, I suppose, from the high ground looking down towards your part of the the world, Terry, is often be described as a, a as a valley of a thousand hills kind of thing. Can you describe a little bit of that country and the type of agriculture that is around the fire area? Yeah, uh, it, you're right. It is called. Uh, by many people, the Valley of a Thousand Hills. And if you came across from Broadford to the Murchison Gap and looked down on it, you'd appreciate that. And the, one of the pluses of it is uh, that you get great vantage points to see things like this. With the wind blowing the smoke away, the fire was quite impressive. I took a couple of shots of it, but the fire front was quite impressive. Uh, and today, of course, I can see nothing. I can only hear helicopters because of the wind change. Yeah, so what what have you woken up to today, Terry? What what does it look like? Is it smoky in your valley? Uh, our valley is shrouded in smoke at the moment. I can't even see where the fire is. I'm just relying on the noise of helicopters moving around. But I do know uh, through reports with some of my uh, friends uh, from the other side of the fire, the A side of the fire, that uh, things are quietened down significantly. And uh, so we feel good about that. There's an easterly uh, breeze sprung up, which would, if the western flank of the fire hadn't been controlled, and I think it must have been, um, that would endanger Flowerdale more than, uh, than uh, we are at present. And just to hear a short time ago that the fire's been downgraded, does that bring some relief as well? Yes, it does. It brings a great deal of comfort. And in fact, without wishing to be critical of, um, and, I, and I shouldn't be critical of them because I think they're doing a marvellous job, but whoever issued the directive that Flowerdale should be evacuated was probably a little bit overreactionary at the time. Um, and I hope it didn't send too much panic into the, the people of Flowerdale who, as you know, in 2009 went through a hell of a lot. Yeah, certainly so, Terry. Like Black Saturday, 14 years ago yeah. now, but certainly keen on the minds of, of everybody who went through it. And yeah. Flowerdale, an area that was hit particularly hard and didn't get a lot of support during those fires there then. So does that bring back bad memories, do you feel, for, for the community in difficult times like this? I would have worried for it based on the reports of evacuation or needing, you know, if they said it was too late to leave. Well, clearly it wasn't in many respects, because there were three different routes away from Flowerdale. 
um, during this whole process. There was only one road closed, and that was the A. Whittlesey Road on the Junction Hill. And that was mainly to provide good access to the fire trucks and things like that. And, and Terry, too, the the country where it is, there's obviously a lot of people who have moved into the area. I'd imagine your property is certainly one of the larger ones. There's a lot of lifestyle properties and so forth through there as well. It is quite amazing with a fire so big as this that there hasn't been more infrastructure lost. I suppose yeah. that goes down to the good work that's been done by crews. Uh, I was amazed at the performance of the crews in the circumstance. They came from everywhere. I was I was there quite shortly after the fire uh, on the advice of a, a, a mate of mine and to see the trucks arriving from Broadford and from King Lake and all uh, Molesworth and all these other places in, in, such prompt, in such a prompt response was just really heartening. But their, their job was made tremendously difficult by the uh, probably the most inhospitable uh, bit of country around the Flowerdale area which fortunately is not heavily populated. I believe some sheds and outbuildings might have been lost, but there have been no no homes lost, which is, is a blessing. But there also are not that many homes in that particular section of the 700 hectares or whatever they're talking about. Um, there are not that many homes in there, and I think the aerial people did a, a fantastic job in ensuring that those homes were saved. Great to hear too, Terry, and good to hear uh, at least, as we said, from, from your point of view, you're so close to where it started, but that you haven't been touched. Thank you for taking us to your part of the world, though, today to tell us how things are going, because our minds are certainly with you. You're welcome, Warwick, and thank you for the call. That's Terry Hubbard speaking to you there from Flowerdale, the Three Sisters property there, uh, area that I know quite well because I used to drive those roads uh, when I worked at a pub. Uh, a very long time ago in my youth, uh, and that valley is full of very steep and inaccessible hills as well, and it sounds like that's where this fire has largely been burning at the moment. But keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. We will continue to update that fire and other fires throughout the day on the program. Indeed, on this program, around the time of the news headlines and the weather, we'll go through the current levels. But that fire in particular, the Flowerdale Fire, is at a Watch and Act level now, down from emergency. Still Watch and Act, though. Still important information for, for those communities. And there is a meeting tonight at 6 p.m at the Yay Recreation Reserve on Snodgrass Street in Yay for the community to get more information there. If you can't get there, if you're on the wrong side of the, the fire and the road closures, it'll be streamed as well. Uh, the Murrindindi Shire Council website might be the best place to go to see that stream. I see they've already got that page set up, so you can log on to that later this evening. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. We'll move away from fires and talk wine grape harvest now, though, on the Country Hour because the grape harvest is finally underway in northwest Victoria. Now, get this, wineries in that region traditionally start crushing grapes around Australia Day, but the mild and wet weather during spring and summer has delayed fruit, ri- fruit ripening. And so the Executive Sales Manager at Andrew Peace Wines, uh, George, uh, George Deja, says it's the latest start his winery has had. It started last Wednesday and uh, we're into it and uh, within another week we'll be uh, full on in uh, 24-7. So everyone's been saying that it's been a delayed start. When would you usually have turned on the crushes? Uh, Normally about a day or two before Australia Day, 25th of January. Um, So we're probably, we're about three or so weeks behind. Is it the latest that you've ever kicked things off? 
This is, yes. Oh, yes, very much so. Now, we, we have our times when you know, it might start a bit earlier, but uh, rarely, uh, but mostly about a week later uh, into the first week of February. But this time around, it's just been a, uh, yeah, a wait and see. Last year, you crushed 44,000 tonnes of fruit. What figure are you expecting for this vintage? We we'll hope to get into the 30s. <laughs> but uh, again, depending upon, uh, look, you know, uh, viticulturists and uh, farmers, they Sometimes they're a bit uh, optimistic and what they say they might get may not always come through onto the Weybridge. So by that, we hope to get about 30, but wouldn't surprise us if it's a bit under that. 30,000 tonne, that is. What's led to that decrease? Being in the Mallee, we love rain whenever we get it. We never say no, but, you know, frankly, we're, we were ready to say no, you know, a couple of weeks into it. Uh, it was just uh, the water, the excess water uh, that we had. We weren't really affected by any of the inundation from the river, but it was more from what came from above. And uh, the vines don't like having their feet wet for too long and uh, they need some sprays after that. So we've got some that are not doing too well and uh, other patches that are doing okay. The weather that's forecast this week is showing temperatures in the mid-30s. Will that help to get fruit to ripen? Oh, it certainly has. Um, Some of the whites have... uh, and screaming out, hey, look, I'm ready, uh, you can take me off now. <laughs> uh, we don't really want them too high in, uh, in Beaumont. But, look, we have to deal with it, and uh, we'll find some are a little bit higher and some are uh, a little bit lower. Um, so it'll be another vintage where not, we've never had one like this before, and it'll be just a challenge, and uh, uh, the winemakers and our uh, vineyard managers just working a little bit extra and a little bit more frustrated, I think. That's what it gets down to. Some wineries have struggled to empty their wine tanks ahead of vintage. Is that something that you're grappling with too? Oh, look, we've been reasonably fortunate to uh, maintain our sales. Uh, we've been able to uh, empty out some of the tanks. But in, in that, if we're not having the same amount of volume coming in, we're having less. Uh, so we do have a bit of room. How quickly do you expect that some of the wine that you're crushing can be bottled and available for consumers? Well, generally our whites, uh, you know, sort of May, June, we would uh, have them ready to go off to get bottled. Um, and where some of the reds will be a, like a June, July onwards, because we export a, a reasonable amount of wine. And <clears throat> pardon me, uh, by the time that uh, we have it ready, so about June, July. It'll go off on a, a tanker and then go overseas. So by the time they get it, put it in the bottle, it's already had a, uh, a little bit of uh, ageing, albeit on a ship that you know, rocks backwards and forwards. But that's how soon we can have it ready. In terms of overseas markets, have you been working on any particular destinations there or are you sticking with the ones that are tried and tested? What, what's that looking like? Oh, well, look, again, we've been fortunate and I think the, the quality of the wine is a, is a good base to work with and if people overseas are happy with that, they'll continue to work with you. So we've been fortunate in that respect to maintain our markets in Europe. Um, we've had some uh, a little bit of increase in South Asia and Southeast Asia um, where uh, Japan sort of come up a little bit for us, uh, Vietnam. So some of those markets have increased uh, not to the same level as what was happening with China, but again, that's for another story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a frustrating scenario, and I'd be keen to hear from you 
if you are a wine grape grower or you work in the industry anywhere as well. Are you seeing those delays and what is it meaning for you? 1300-977-222. You can text as well, 0467-842-722. That was the Executive Sales Manager at Andrew Peace Wines, uh, George Deja, speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth, our reporter. You're listening to The Country Hour. Warwick along with you today and... I really do. Would love to hear from wine grape growers on how your vintage is looking and how late it is compared to other years. So get in touch if you can. Let's talk grains though now because historically classification of new varieties of barley, wheat, oats, canola and pulses has all been done by separate organisations. Barley and wheat classification has already shifted to Grains Australia and the other commodities are in the process of being brought over as well. Angus Verley spoke with Grains Australia General Manager for Classification, Megan Sheehy, about the changes. One of our core elements of Grains Australia is to deliver market-driven classification to the industry. So classification is really important because it connects growers to market value via breeding. So Grains Australia is providing a connected and informed approach with excellent support functionality by having input from Grains Commodity Councils, which provides end-to-end, so from grower right through the supply chain to the end user, providing strategic input into classification frameworks. And this classification work, it it has been taking place to this point, but by a whole bunch of different organisations, and and the ultimate plan is for Grains Australia to do that work for all grains commodities? That's correct. So... To this point in time, Barley Australia and Wheat Quality Australia have merged their company structures into Grains Australia, bringing with them their classification functions. And we're currently also building classification frameworks for oats and pulses and in, in the future potentially for oil seeds as well which will be fantastic to be able to share learnings across those commodities. And I guess the important distinction is that we're talking here about I suppose classifications of new varieties as they come online rather than setting grading or, or receival standards at receival sites? That's correct. So there is a very big difference there between classification and between grading. So classification focuses on the genetic differences between varieties, which the breeders are focusing on delivering in some cases, particularly for wheat and barley, quite comprehensive lists of different uh, technical requirements that they need to deliver information on or that we need to do further testing on. For example, in malting barley, we carry out pilot malting, commercial malting and pilot brewing on the varieties that are submitted into a program. And clearly you you can't do that at the point of receival when grain's being delivered. Okay, so as part of your work, if a new barley variety was developed, you'd classify whether it was malt or not? Yeah, that's correct. So for malting barley, essentially we are classifying it. We have pretty much two classes. We have medium fermentability or high fermentability varieties. And essentially we are saying at the end of this process that that variety can make malt and it can make beer within that fermentability classification. So it's fit for purpose. Is it your role to talk with end users about what they want and then feed that back to the, the plant breeders? 
Certainly that is our role at Grains Australia to have that connected end-to-end approach. So part of the value that we can deliver is collecting those market signals and being able to reliably inform the breeder so they can utilise that information within their breeding programs which in turn leads to a structured and strategic approach to grains classification which gives grower value by having confidence that the varieties that the growers are planting are going to be varieties that are valued by the market at the end of the day. And on that note I imagine though that in some cases or lots of cases that that the, the varietal traits that the grower wants may not align with what the end user wants? Well, look, it's certainly true that it's, it is a tricky balance. For we give, we give a big wish list to the breeders where they need to balance agronomic attributes that are important to the grower. The growers are looking for yield. Uh, they're looking for good disease resistance and all the other sorts of things that are important to them from an agronomic point of view. And the breeders... A large task is to be able to combine those agronomic traits with end quality traits which is where classification testing is quite important because uh, the breeders are looking at those traits and how they can incorporate them along with those agronomic features and yield gains into new varieties and that's where we test those genetic differences and how they perform with those the end product functionality through classification are there opportunities in the future for new uh, higher classifications more valuable classifications than currently exist certainly for for wheat and barley we have comprehensive classification already that delivers market market value particularly for wheat across a number of different categories with the various classes that are available Certainly we'll continue to review and assess how those classes are delivering for both the grower and the end market user. We do have to be careful not to overcomplicate to the point where a breeder, it's, it's an impossible list for them to reach those quality traits while at the same time being able to deliver yield and disease resistance stability etc in the varieties for the grower that's megan sheehy from grains australia speaking to angus furley from the grdc conference in update in bendigo where angus has been reporting for the last couple of days you'll hear more from that event over the coming days as well on the country hour just uh, one text on the wine grapes and how late they are chris hi chris how are you thank you for texting hi warwick the wine grapes i have assisted to pick over the last 26 years near stall will be a month late this year says chris good info thanks for that uh let's head to the newsroom and find out what's happening in uh, our regions of victoria right now with courtney howe good afternoon courtney Good afternoon, Warwick. Fire crews in Flowerdale are working to contain a bushfire in the area. More than 700 hectares has been burnt around Spring Valley Road since the fire started yesterday afternoon. A Watching Act remains in effect and a community meeting will be held at 6 o'clock tonight at the Yay Recreation Reserve. CFA Incident Controller Brett Myers says they're hopeful the fire can be contained by tomorrow afternoon. Meanwhile, a grass and scrub fire that came within hundreds of metres of 
of businesses in East Bendigo this week has been deemed suspicious. Forest Fire Management Victoria and the Victoria Police Arson Squad are investigating the blaze, which was in a disused mining area. Firefighters called to the public land near Haywood Street just after 2 o'clock on Monday. A jury will today visit the site of a fatal collision on Horsham's Dimboola Road with a criminal trial underway. The prosecution alleges Amala Paulson of Adelaide failed to keep a proper lookout and a safe distance when passing Liam Batson on the road into Horsham on the 19th of December 2019. The court heard Mr Batson was knocked off his bike by Ms Paulson's B-double and died at the scene. She has pleaded not guilty. The chief executive of an organisation that represents energy businesses says coal production will continue to be phased out rapidly, despite a report that found Victoria is at risk of electricity shortages by 2027. The Australian energy market operator has found more investment in energy is urgently needed to avoid a shortfall as the nation transitions from coal power to renewable sources like solar and wind. Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Council, Sarah McNamara, says plans for coal plants to exit the energy system are scheduled years in advance. And Victoria's Small Business Commissioner is urging more regional businesses to reach out for help following an uptick in reported disputes. Commissioner Linda McAllary-Smith is touring areas in the Goulburn Valley and northeast this week to meet with local business owners. She said she's already heard about a number of challenges impacting regional areas, including staffing numbers. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Was Thanks very much for that, Courtney. How there with regional news headlines? ABC Radio, emergency information. Yeah, just that update. On the firewall speaking earlier, there is a watch and act in place for the Dairy Creek, Flowerdale, Homewood, Kerrisdale, Strath Creek and Strath Creek along the Upper King Parrot Creek Road. Uh, the watch and act message has replaced that emergency warning that was in place earlier today. But... Uh, you need to know there is a grass fire at Spring Valley Road, Flowerdale, that's not yet under control. The risk of spread is on the western side of the fire, so monitor conditions and be ready to act. Smoke may be visible in nearby communities, and indeed it is, as we've heard today. Firefighting aircraft are also in attendance supporting firefighters on the ground, and firefighters may undertake backburning to ensure containment of this fire, which may create additional smoke in the immediate area. So you should prepare to leave conditions may change and get worse very quickly uh, and continue to stay informed and monitor conditions there is a relief center open from 12 to 9 p.m today at the yay recreation reserve which is the footy ground in yay on snodgrass street uh, also there will be a community meeting there at 6 p.m today at that recreation reserve at the footy ground in Yay. If you can't get there, the Murrindindi Shire Council will be streaming that meeting. Uh, so if you head to the council's website, you'll be able to uh, watch it from there. So certainly if you're on the wrong side of the fire in that community, that might be the best thing for you to be able to do. There is also a watch and act in place, probably a little bit south of our broadcast area at Wildwood, which is just north of Melbourne. I suppose you're thinking in that area between Mickleham and Sunbury. So many of you may be travelling south today that you should be aware of that there is a grass fire at Fians Road 
wildwood that's not under control. It's burning within the Deep Creek area near Fians Road. There are firefighters and aircraft working in that area as well. So be warned that there is that Wachanak fire still burning in that part of the world too. So they're the two major fires this lunchtime to keep aware of, but always stay informed. Use the Vic Emergency app or keep listening to ABC Radio and we'll update you as the situation changes. Speaking of the situation changing, we better go to the Weather Bureau right now and find out what's happening weather-wise around our state and how things are looking, particularly for those fire crews who are battling those blazes. Uh, Michael Efron is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. He can take us through the weather for today. G'day, Michael. G'day, Warren. How's it looking out there? Yeah, pretty settled uh, again across the state with uh, just some patchy clouds mainly uh, over uh, the east of the state, uh, but through western, northwestern uh, districts, uh, dry and mostly sunny. We do have the winds today uh, from the, the east, northeast, so a bit warmer across uh, southern parts of the state, although uh, still slightly cooler uh, across Gippsland. Already temperatures uh, in the far northwest into the low 30s, but elsewhere uh, generally in uh, the mid to high 20s. And we do have a heat wave warning uh, current for uh, the southwest district with uh, severe heat wave conditions expected uh, today, tomorrow and Friday. And in terms of uh, temperatures, through the rest of this afternoon, looking at a top of 37 at Mildura, elsewhere uh, generally around 31 to 35 degrees, but in Gippsland uh, with that slightly onshore airstream, uh, only 23 at Sail, 24 at Bansdale. So we head into Thursday. We do see uh, the winds uh, turning more north-northeast, so across Gippsland, uh, warmer conditions expected. There will be some uh, morning fog in the south and east, uh, so Bansdale expecting 28, Sail 29, elsewhere warnable up to 34, Wangaratta 31, Echuca 33, Horsham 35, Mildura up to 36. And then on uh, Friday, uh, not too much change, just those temperatures creeping up uh, a little. We're looking at uh, 39 at Mildura, Echuca up to 35, Wangaratta 33, Warnable and Hamilton both uh, 37, Ballarat 33, Dale 34, Bansdale 33. So... Uh, dry, warm to hot and mostly sunny on Friday. Uh, maybe some morning fog in the east and we'll have those moderate to locally fresh uh, northerly winds uh, on Friday. That is ahead of a, a change which will enter the west of the state on Saturday morning and then push into central parts through the, the late afternoon or evening. We will have uh, those strong and gusty northerly winds again ahead of that change, but they will shift cooler southwesterly uh, behind the trough, and we'll also have cloud increasing with some shower activity developing over the, the west and southwest as well, but totals out of that typically less than five millimetres, so not a, a huge amount of rain out of that. Uh, ahead of the change, still looking at temperatures in uh, the mid-30s through central and eastern districts and also through the northwest, but in the, the southwest with that change arriving a bit earlier, typically uh, looking at tops around 27 to 29 degrees. And so after Saturday, we go into a period of cooler weather with uh, southerly or south to southeasterly winds. So Sunday, we'll have a couple of showers in the south with temperatures in the low to mid-20s across the north, dry and partly cloudy, around 25 to 29 degrees. And then on Monday, again, some light showers in the south, temperatures still in the mid-20s 
pushing into the high 20s or low 30s across the north. And then on Tuesday, uh, we'll see most of the showers clearing, but still uh, looking at temperatures in the south uh, around the low to mid 20s, but high 20s uh, to low 30s. Uh, across the north. So not a lot of rainfall over the next week. And I should also add that, uh, as you mentioned, there's some fires in the landscape at the moment and we are expecting that through Thursday we'll see high fire danger ratings through most districts and then currently forecasting extreme fire danger in the Wimmera district on Friday. So those forecasts will be refined over the next couple of days, but people should be aware of those, um, those conditions as we head towards the end of the week. Certainly a, a late summer this year, it seems, Michael. Absolutely. Very little rainfall uh, so far this month and does, I guess, tend to follow uh, given we are seeing the La Nina breaking down. Uh, so uh, definitely a shift in conditions with um, very little rainfall, particularly through uh, northern uh, parts of the state. So uh, I suppose then what does uh, you, you run through, I suppose, the fire weather and so forth. Any other things along the warnings front that we should keep an eye on over the next couple of days? Just the heatwave warning as well um, with, with those pretty warm conditions expected, uh, especially in the southwest. Uh, the, the temperatures overnight, uh, they're a little bit unusual. We're looking at um, generally the, the high teens or low 20s, so... The, the daytime temperatures are not necessarily anything um, really um, significant, but it's just the, the run of, uh, of warm days and nights does make things a um, little bit difficult for, for some people. So um, stay out of the sun if possible and, and also stay hydrated. Uh, check on uh, family, friends and, and neighbours as and well. That's an interesting point, Michael, too, because obviously when some of these warnings are issued, there'll be people who say, oh, we have hot days like this most summers, what's the problem? But particularly in terms of the formula the Bureau is using for heat weather warnings, uh, the overnight temperatures are particularly important. Exactly right. And also, um, given we have seen relatively mild conditions uh, this summer, um, a lot of people may not necessarily be um, be used to to this uh, this weather coming up, so uh, definitely uh, keep um, keep it in mind um, as we head through the rest of this week. Well, I'm grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks, Warwick. That is senior forecast at the Bureau of Meteorology, Michael Efron, taking you through the full forecast. There, having a look at what is to come. There is some warm weather. On the way, you're listening to the Country Hour. You can give us a call, 1300 977 222, or you can text 0467 842 722. Let's talk wool at the moment, though, on the program, because we've been speaking a lot about the amount of sheep in the country and why shearing is a priority for some of the uh, the major bodies in the wool industry as well to get the wool off so many more sheep in the country as well. Well, southwest Victorian sheep farmers and contractors are in a desperate need of wool classes as an industry-wide shortage starts to bite. To address this, South West TAFE will deliver a wool classing course starting in March at Maroona near Ararat. And wool classing teacher Stuart McPherson said there were plenty of well-paid job opportunities for experienced people to work in that field. There, there is quite a considerable shortage at the moment. The, the shearing industry as a whole has been facing a lot of shortage of skilled people over the last you know, five to 
or so years. So it's um, been really difficult, and I think it's really been focused in these these last uh, five months. We've had those very wet conditions, which stalled shearing for quite some months, and uh, now there's you know really high demand for people to be working in the industry. Why do you think that there's a shortage generally at the moment? Obviously, there's the high demand, but is there historically a shortage of wool classes around the region? I think so. I think, you know, there's, there's always been a, a shortage and um, we've just been listed as a, a, a skill shortage area, which, you know, I think, you know, should have been should have come in some years ago, but that yeah, we have um, there always has been a, a shortage of, of good wool classes as well. And I have heard from uh, some in the industry that although obviously shearers can basically demand whatever sort of pay that they want at the moment due to the excessive shortage, that wool classes still aren't getting paid in equivalence with shearers. Is that right? No, I think um, I think that's um, across the industry. I think you know just the demand to to try and get people into the industry and and retain them. I think because you know there's a there's certainly a competition between contractors to maintain to retain staff. So you know if if they're not kept getting paid, you know an adequate wage, then you know they'll move on to another contractor. So you know because of the shortage, you know that demand's really strong to try and maintain staff. So what's the TAFE doing to address this shortage? At Southwest TAFE, um, I work uh, regionally with training as well. So we, I'm based out of Hamilton, but each year we do regional training around the Western District. So we take the wool classing to uh, small towns or areas where there is demand. This year we are going to be doing some training at Maruna, which is half an hour south of uh, Ararat. And um, we'll also have a, a group going at Mortlake and also the, back at our base at Hamilton. How long does, do these courses generally take? They'll take anywhere between nine months and 18 months. The, the course is somewhat self-paced. We certainly do a lot of delivery in class and with the practical components of the course, but um, generally it's the theory that um, slow people down as far as completing. But if they're able to keep up with the theory component, then, you know, certainly 12 months is not un unreasonable to um, complete the course. There's been a large TAFE push from the Victorian government. So is this a subsidised course or how much is it going to cost if somebody is interested in applying? Just um, in the last few weeks, there's been a government um, list or the new skills priority list being published and um, wool classing and um, certificate three in wool handling have both been recognised as a, a skills shortage area. So the incentives that go with that is uh, focused at people doing traineeships. And uh, so if a person's able to attain a, a traineeship, and that's generally through a contractor or a broker or uh, then the incentives are, are quite considerable. Uh, they're looking at uh, $1,250 payment six monthly for the dur duration of the course. So, so therefore, a 12-month course can um, give them $2,500 in, as, uh, in terms of payment. Uh, also, that um, goes through to the contractor as well, where they can uh, get a reimbursement of 10% of the wages they're paying for those students. So it's quite exciting in that side. There you go. That is uh, the talk of wall classes. I wonder if that's your experience, because when I was in Bendigo for the National 
shearing championships. Uh, a lot of people in sheds were saying that area needed to see the pay rises that shearers had seen uh, to make sure that the workforce was there. So I'm not the expert in this fear. I, want, I wonder if that is happening or is that something that you're seeing around the sheds? You can let us know, 0467-842-722. That's Wool Classing Teacher at Southwest TAFE, Stuart McPherson. He was speaking with Jane McNaughton on the text line. We do have one point here from an anonymous texter saying there is a vast difference between just a wool classer and a classer that can run a shed. Thank you very much for your input as well. You can keep the text coming, 0467-842-722. Love your input here on the Country Hour. I've got an interesting one for you now. One of the biggest agriculture conferences, particularly looking at ag tech, is going on right at the moment in Adelaide called Evoke Ag. It was on a couple of years ago in Melbourne. We did some broadcasts from there for the Country Hour. Uh, and yeah, the, the same conference is back this year over in Adelaide. And they've been talking about interesting ideas and changes to agriculture. And I wonder if this is one that you've thought about or that you agree with the premise. I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Mustering livestock with drones is a cheaper, safer and more, more productive option than traditional methods, according to Luke Chaplin, who's the founder of Sky Kelpie, an agri-tech startup aimed to be the first company in the world to commercialise mustering with drones. Although there's still a few kinks to iron out, Luke Chaplin believes drones will eclipse traditional mustering methods in no time. And he shares how his idea was born and what he's pitching at Evoke this week. So it was bored in a uni lecture uh, in 2017 and my mate and I uh, were just daydreaming about different solutions. Um, drones were, they were definitely had been around for a few years, these consumer drones floating about, but we thought how good would it be to muster with them? So from there um, I was lucky enough to join up with Farmers to Founders, their ideas program. I then got a Nuffield scholarship um, which really opened the door you know, PR wise uh, to some funding and support. Um, um, so last year we did uh, quite sophisticated trials in this space with Meat and Livestock Australia and Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and we, we're really excited. So we've validated our assumptions. It works. Um, so now what our job is to build um, a range of products and services to enable livestock operators to fly the drones themselves. And when it comes to them being able to fly these drones, what sort of licences and regulations are barriers for that to be able to happen? So at the moment, um, under the regulations, there is the landholder rule, um, and it's quite cool. So it permits livestock mustering if you are under 400 feet. Um, It's your own drone on your own property, but you have to keep it within visual line of sight. So what we're proposing to um, the regulator this year is just for some more streamlined and practical uh, you know, regulations um, around this. It's very complex, time-consuming and expensive. You'll need a consultant at the moment to be able to get beyond visual line-of-sight permissions for your property. Um, so we're really hoping to break down that barrier and I think it'll really open up to the possibility of adopting this solution you know, industry-wide. How does a drone compare to traditional dogs, horses, helicopters, motorbikes? What are the benefits to having a drone? Well, Demetria, you can put a speaker on it, and I've actually got Slim Dusty singing Woo Bullock Woo. So that's more of a party trick for these conferences that I go to. Um, 
the way I see it, it's just another form of pressure. So just like a, a dog, a motorbike, someone on a horse or helicopter, the drone acts as a form of pressure that the animals, which we proved last year, um, effectively move off. So it's all about how you apply that pressure and when you release it uh, to keep your animals in a light, responsive manner and keep them in a good frame of mind as well because that's what uh, you know we really want to promote is sort of that animal welfare aspect because that just has a range of uh, you know productivity benefits um, if the animals are in a good state of mind. And how are the cows responding to the drones and what other benefits can you see the drone having on the land? Yeah, so really well, as I said, they're, they're moving off it as a form of pressure quite well and we're able to keep them in a, in a good state of mind. Um, you know, the technology allows for a range of different benefits, I think. Um, you know, with infrared cameras and, you know, the great zooms on them and we can start to harness some AI for detecting the animals as well, I think that will really allow for clean paddock musters. And if we can make sure that all animals are accounted for, I think that's going to have benefits for fertility, you know, past management, supplement management and also pest detection as well. Um, with our trials last year we were able to find quite a lot of wild dogs on sheep properties and really interesting, you know, finding them at night time with thermal imaging, um, it was really effective. You're heading overseas to do some more research in this space, what are you hoping to discover? So I'm heading to Asia next month as part of my uh, Nuffield travels um, and I'll be meeting with some you know, large drone manufacturers over there basically just to get them excited about you know, this is a huge use case um, for their technology. Possibly I can convince them to you know, focus a bit of their R&D towards this solution and, you know, yeah, and possibly spark up some you know, partnerships for distribution. So um, that'll be next month. Um, I'll heading, be heading to America as well, Israel. Um, so basically uh, to explore all the you know, great technology that's happening overseas and what other countries are doing with their regulations as well. Uh, having said that, Australia is probably best place to be pioneers in this progressive regulation space because of our low air risk and ground risk in rural Australia. Um, it, it really lends itself to progressing these regulations to be able to fly these drones out of line of sight. I'm with CASA on keeping the sky safe and they've done a great job in, in keeping the aviation community safe for a long time. Um, I think we can do it in a practical and safe manner that really unlocks the full potential of this solution. And you're working towards a commercialisation of this product. How's that going? So it's going. Um, but that's why it's good to come to events like this to network uh, and just bounce ideas off people. So, you know, our, our customers are at the forefront and we're using some really, you know, excited, energetic early adopters and we're going to learn off them just as much as they learn off us. So uh, really keen to connect um, with people who want to get into drone mustering. Um, we're here to help and, and let's get through it together. That's Luke Chaplin, founder of Sky Kelpie, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris at the AgriFutures Evoke conference, which is currently going on in Adelaide. And I love a couple of you guys on the text. Crikey, sheepdogs, you better look out. Your days are numbered. Woof, woof, says one person on the text line. And if drones are going to be mustering, you better stop throwing the frisbee to the kelpie. Can you throw a frisbee at a sky kelpie? Maybe that's a question for another day. And drones will never replace stockmanship. This is what the industry needs, says Jeff on the text line as well. Uh, 64. 
market to market. Let's go to Lee Gatha and the cattle market there first today. And g'day to Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. There were 170 more at 1780 with the same large group of buyers competing in a dearer market. Quality was good with most weights and grades represented and a few more trade cattle on offer. Trade cattle sold to stronger competition. Bullocks lifted 10 cents. Manufacturing steers sold 5 to 10 dearer. Cows were mostly 10 cents dearer and more in places with processors loading cows for an estimated 582 to 612 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 5 cents. Ground steers and bullocks sold from 360 to 400 cents. Heavy Friesian steers 299 to 341. Crossbreds 318 to 370. Most light and medium weight cows 240 to 280. Heavyweights 262 to 323. Heavy bulls 265 to 310. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Let's go to the sheep and lamb market reports now. We'll start today in Hamilton and Chris Agnew. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded 11,612 lambs at Hamilton this week, which was an increase of some 3,856. The quality of the offering was very good to excellent, displaying far better evenness as well as breeding over the total offering. Most of the regular buyers were present, but not all fully active. In a market that was fully firm for all lambs to the trade, with lambs back to the paddock and under 20 kilos, they were up to $20 per head dearer, with a substantial number of these lambs being purchased by the trade due to the increase in quality. Top shorn lambs made to $230, the light lambs 12 to 16, from 78 to 125, lambs 18 to 22, 144 to 180, making between 730 and 780 cents a kilo medium trade lambs 22 to 26 184 to 218 they were also making 730 to 780 heavy lambs making around 800 cents a kilo at hamilton this is chris agnew reporting for mla thanks very much for that chris we'll go to horsham now and graham palmer good afternoon graham good afternoon everyone lamb numbers were similar to 3600 sheep supply was back at just 750 head Quality was excellent over the lead pens, but generally better overall. Usual buying group at 10 and operating a firm Badira market on the heavy and heavy trade weight lambs. The medium and heavy trade weight sold from 173 to 214. Heavy lambs sold to 250. Restockers paid from 64 to 175. Unshorn lambs mostly sold from 132 to 212. Low sheep numbers saw solid competition with sheep selling to Badira trend at times 10 to 15 dollars a head up. Merino U sold to 141, Crossbreed U sold to 131. The trade weight lamb sold from 144 to 170 to average 770 to 800 cents. The medium trade weight lamb sold from 173 to 188 to 780 to 790. Export weight sold from 206 to 238, never average 790 cents. Extra heavyweight sold from 232 to 250. Medium weight sheep sold from 74 to 103, average close to 400. Heavy hoggets made to 157, Ram sold to 53, and Graham Pinewood Horsham from LA. Thanks very much for that, Graham. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email, countryhour at abc.net.au. We'd love to hear from you. I am going to test an interesting possible new piece of farming equipment. Uh, this afternoon. I look forward to talking about it more with you tomorrow on the program. Hope you can join us with your thoughts then. I'll be about as cryptic as that. If not, your rural reports are on the radio tomorrow morning. And if you need rural news before then, go to abc.net.au slash rural. Hope you have a great afternoon. It's coming up to one o'clock.